Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, entrepreneurs who share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. I apologize for the holiday lull. I'm back in the U.S. visiting family and friends for the holiday. I'm wishing everyone else happy holidays as well, and hopefully everyone has a good New Year's full of travels and hopefully free of any form of the pandemic. For today's episode, I spoke with Rajiv Lamba a few months back. I was able to connect with Rajiv serendipitously, and after a quick chat, I knew we had to have a podcast episode together. Rajiv has built a successful market research company and organically found the pain points that led to founding a company called Survey Sensum, a competitor to the famous Qualtrics survey company, which was bought two to three years back for $8 billion and recently IPO'd with a market cap of $21 billion. In the wake of the Freshworks IPO and even companies from Utah becoming successful, there's great hope for Southeast Asia. In this episode, we discuss Rajiv's background and how he found Neurosensum and SurveySensum and discuss the nature of SaaS in Southeast Asia versus the West. We also talk about how Rajiv tackles product iterations, sales cycles across countries. And lastly, Rajiv answers, ultimately, what does it take to be successful in SaaS in Asia? If you're ready to learn, let's dive in and listen. Rajiv, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time today. Uh, thanks, Alex, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so today we have with us uh, Rajiv Lambda, founder and CEO of NeuroSensum and SurveySensum. Did I say that correctly? Uh, Rajiv Lamba, yeah. <laughs> okay, Rajiv Lamba, okay. So before we begin, I'll just talk a little bit about your background and you could help fill in the details. Um, you were born and raised in India? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, which, which part of India? Uh, I come from a place near Delhi. It's called Faridabad, so that's my hometown. Okay, and then uh, a long time ago, uh, you decided to move to Southeast Asia, correct? Yeah, that was in 2004. That's correct. So at 2004, I moved to Jakarta. What made you want to leave from India to Indonesia? Uh, was there something happening at the time that we didn't know about or was something exciting that was growing or what, what was the opportunity? So see, uh, in 2004, I finished my MBA. And yeah. at that time, uh, I got placed in one of the company in Indonesia. So I didn't know anything about the place. So I just got <laughs> hired by a company and I thought, okay, it might be a good adventure to go out of India and work in an international market. I didn't have any clue about Indonesia. Uh, in fact, I, yeah. I, I, the only place that I heard was Bali at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't have any clue what Indonesia looks like, how people are there. So I just thought, you know, I was very young. Uh, so I thought, okay, let's, let's go and give yeah. it a try. Let's, let's go with this adventure, right? And it seems that you had like a few years working in India. You did your MBA and then you kind of went on the adventure, um, which is over a decade probably doing uh, doing market research, right, for corporate companies? That's correct. So I, in 2004, I went to Jakarta, and I was there for around uh, uh, 14 years in Indonesia. Mm. So I, was, I was based in Jakarta. I was uh, doing market research. I've been a market researcher uh, by profession. And in 2018, I moved to Singapore. Yeah. And it seems that, you know, despite this long corporate experience, you had a bit of entrepreneurial spirit in you. I feel like a lot of young people would be more afraid to leave a completely different context and change their whole life. So uh, do, do you feel that, you know, the, that has always been inside of you? In fact, you know, what happened that my entrepreneurship journey started in 2011. Mm. At that time, I was around uh, 31, 32. So I joined a very small startup, uh, a market research startup, where I got the, the shareholding. So that was my first entrepreneurship journey in a way. I was one of the shareholders okay. in my previous company. and. Uh, I was very young, company was very small. Then me and my partner, we grew the company at that time. At that time, in my previous organization, I also started uh, Vietnam as well as Middle East operation. Mm -hmm. So I, I was lucky that I, I had that six, seven years of experience very early of my life. Mm -hmm. So then the company got sold and I cashed out my equity. So that was my first mm -hmm. exit. You know, at that time, the word of startup was not that famous. So people used to call business. Correct. So I'm joining yes. a small yes. business. So that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. So that fancy term yeah. of startup was not there. So in 2017, uh, I left that company. So I was there for six years, uh, made my exit, cashed out my shares. And 2018, I started NeuroSensor. Yeah. So so it actually seems that you've had the whole span of time before this big VC boom, big startup boom, like uh, before 2010. Like that was when there was really absolutely nothing. It was a very quiet time. 
Uh, and then probably from 2000 onwards, things started to really ramp up really big. By 2012, you had Rocket Internet coming in, and then it started to become popular over the following years. And then um, seems like at the peak, you know, you were able to sell a company. So that's quite quite the accomplishment. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, at that time, uh, the, the concept of fundraising uh, was not there. So we had to be kind of completely dependent on banks for the loans. So there were no, uh, so the banks was the only option for you to get loans at that time. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we used to completely rely on profitable business. Now the game is a bit different right now. So that time if yeah, you're yeah. profitable, you can run your own, get your own cash, open up new, new offices. So that was the concept at that time, you know, like 11 till, till 17. And this was, uh, your company was based in Indonesia? It was based in Indonesia. It's, it's, it's a global firm. So it, it also had offices in US, UK, but I was managing the Indonesia office. Uh, would you consider this an SME or medium-sized business? Yeah, it was a small size. I think medium size from a research perspective, because in market research, it okay. was a medium size. But overall, if you look from all across all industries, it was a small size. Yeah. Which, I mean, 70% of the GDP from Indonesia is driven by SME anyway, right? So yeah, that's correct. With that perspective in mind, you had to, how long did it take for you to get the company profitable in order to get bank loans to finance it, which is a very different time, right? So it was in 2011. Uh, so when I joined the company, it was already four years in inception. Okay. So the company started in 2007. I think we became profitable by, I think by 2011, we were anyways profitable as a company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think within three, four years, we became profitable as a unit. And then okay. from there, we scaled up the operations uh, significantly in Indonesia, then started Vietnam and Middle East. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think a bank loan, we could we could get the bank loan in 2011-12. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like a very different game that you'd have to operate three, four years, make a real business, and then you raise yeah. capital. Uh, yeah. How much of that do you carry over into your current company's Neurosensum and SurveySensum? It seems that it's a guiding principle to be have a real business at heart. You're selling, ha have real value. Uh, then you think about the fundraising piece or have that, has that changed uh, in modern times for you? So see, in 2018, of course, uh, when I started Neurosensum, uh, I wanted to bring technology into the market research. I wanted to disrupt the entire market research industry. So I did three rounds of fundraising. But, uh, but if you ask me honestly, uh, having a profitable business is always in my heart. Okay. I, I believe you, you know, I don't really believe valuation as a game. I like more, I, I call it as more as value creation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm of, a, of a leader who likes to build profitable businesses so that the business mm -hmm. should be able to self-generate cash. Plus, of course, when see, if, if, you're, if your top line is growing, if you're a profitable business, you will anyways get many investors. But the key thing that I always believed is to be self-sustainable as a business as soon as possible. So we started in mm -hmm. 2018. We scaled up the business in the last three, four years, but we have become already a profitable unit. That doesn't mean that I don't want to raise more funds. Of course, I still want to raise more funds to start new yeah. countries and expand the business because you need cash. And profit sometimes is not yeah. enough to expand multiple countries. But at the heart, I always wanted my business to be profitable as soon as possible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, carried, I carried those traditional thoughts of cash flows, yeah. Yeah. good cash flows management, being efficient, but also increase, increasing the top line. So I've never forgotten those fundamentals uh, but sometimes yeah, I feel yeah. when I look at other entrepreneurs, I feel that they they don't look at completely those fundamentals. They just want to scale up the yeah, top yeah. lines, get to second round, Correct. third round, fourth round. Uh, but but I'm, I'm I'm a different kind of individual in that. In that, would you say one way is better than the other? Would you advise young founders? I guess more specifically in the businesses that you know, uh, you know, in SaaS or in you know market research, is that the right way to build business, or do you think it's viable to? kind of play the other game where you kind of just raise top line and keep raising on that and it becomes a viable business later? I think I'll not say one is better than another. I like to, to do what I told you. Uh, okay, but, yeah. But do people can play uh, just increasing top line, expanding and raising more money? Of course, that's what I believe uh, is a startup world is all about nowadays. So yeah. I will not say that world is a bad world. Uh, it depends on the choices of the entrepreneurs. And I think... Uh, you can still go with that that option, but with that option, uh, my only advice to young entrepreneurs will, will be never to take away the sight of profitability. 
Yeah, I think it's okay to expand market. It's okay to build market. It's okay to disrupt market. But the intent should be that over time, my CLV, which is customer life value, should be far greater than the CAC, which is the cost of a customer acquisition. Correct. Right. Uh, yeah. And sometimes when I when I see uh, young entrepreneurs, they just focus on acquisition. Let me keep on acquiring <laughs> users. Uh, they don't care yeah, about yeah. the leaky buckets. Uh, by the time you know, uh, they feel that the buckets are leaking. They anyways leak too much, which mm-hmm. means that the cash runs out. Uh, sometimes the cash, the cost of acquisition is greater than CLV, uh, which is what I don't like personally. I always believe uh, within two or three years, or within a couple of years, you should be at least making money with the same client. Even if you want to burn, after second yeah, or third perfect. year, you should be making money from that client. So the CLV ultimately should be far greater than the CAC. And, and you have to get the efficiencies mm-hmm. of scale. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately your the way you describe it is that you will have more clarity because you actually know what monetizes and what the value and pain point you're solving. So yeah. when, when push comes to shove, you know, if you do need to scale, you know how to more effectively deploy the capital. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, sometimes founder may skip steps, you know, yeah. um, they can they, they can do what you described, which is just, you know, build market faster and bigger, but they kind of need that insights beforehand. Otherwise, later on, you get in big trouble where, like you said, you acquire a bunch of, uh, you know, a cohort that just doesn't monetize or it's just uh, not valuable at all and not sticky. Right. And I think yeah. uh, we've seen a lot of companies coming and going through this kind of cycles and through the noise. Right. That's correct. And I think, see, the reality is, you know, when we look at the startup world, we only see companies which have become very successful. We don't know 95 mm-hmm. percent of the companies which have raised money, but they've flopped. So what happens that uh, sometimes the, the, the the feel of I want to blitz scale without proving your model can be dangerous. I'm of opinion that you prove your model in one country, once it's successful, then you expand to multiple countries, then you can blitz scale because you've got the model in place, you've got the product in place, you've got the process in place, now you need to multiply. Correct. But sometimes yeah. people just tend to go too fast too soon. Um, they hire loads of employees to help them out and the business, they're not able to get to the second or third round. Then they end up firing many of them and lose the loyalty of the, of the team. So uh, I don't like those kind of businesses personally. I will never run that kind of business. I'm of the opinion: you prove yourself in one market, get your process correct, then you get into bliss scale when you think that you're, is the right time. And I think one nuance is that 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 is very valuable advice. But what happens is that in say like a Western market, that cycle could happen faster. Um, either like, or even like in China, right? Because it's more homogenous in nature. So when you solve it for one city, scaling to the other city is really no brainer. Whereas uh, it may be different in a fragmented place like Southeast Asia. So the cycle actually might be longer of understanding the value. So I think a lot of people may conflate that, you know, there's a fixed time for the West and Eastern type companies, because, uh, you know, if, if they're successful in 10 years, if they, I should be successful in Asia in 10 years, but that's not necessarily true, right? It actually may take even longer to figure out, uh, you know, something yeah. like Southeast Asia because the, of, of, because of those differences. So, and, you know, it, whereas it may be 10 years in the West, it actually may be 20 years in the East. And then of course, if you don't have that, if you don't do the correct exercise of understanding, then you probably run into, run out of money. And then you get into a big problem where you have to raise money on a death cycle, down rounds, and this kind of stuff. You're absolutely correct. I think that's one of the reasons after doing so well in Indonesia, uh, I realized that possibly the next market I want to get it in, in US. So yes. now what we've done, we've expanded, uh, we're expanding our operations in US. So we just started that a month back. Uh, we already started getting customers from US to our marketing efforts. So from Indonesia, uh, of course, Singapore is our priority, our second market, but US is our big priority right now for the same reasons mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Like SaaS is far more acceptable uh, in those markets. It can run at a faster pace. While in Southeast Asia, you need mm-hmm. to have your own sweet time. Yeah. And so before we get into the, the discussion of SaaS itself, let's let's paint the picture of how Neurosensum and SurveySensum were born, right? So you were working in market research for a long time. Um, and then I think essentially Neurosensum and SurveySensum are a direct result of that experience, right? What was happening with this old market research businesses? You know, what, what was what was their bread and butter? Um, what was the pain points, and what led to launching Neurosensum as your first company? Yeah, so I think let, let's talk about Neurosensum first. So traditionally, the way market research was happening, Alex, that I ask you and you tell me, which yeah, is very what we call as a rational response. But we know that consumers they don't take decisions based on their rational response. Consumers, we lot mm-hmm. of us take decisions more at a subconscious level. Yeah. Right. And and 
and the techniques i'll not say the techniques are fuddy duddy but that techniques were going on for 30 years from the time you know i've seen market research so i wanted to get into a play where uh, the idea was to go beyond a rational mind because when people are taking decisions at subconscious level and we ask people to rationalize then of course at a rationalization level especially in asia people tend to say very nice and polite responses which means do you mm-hmm. like my ad people will say yes do you like my product people will <laughs> yeah. say yes but that doesn't mean that they like it so when client launch a product uh, based on what consumers are saying uh, many of time it, it doesn't fly because you know it's a claim response mm-hmm. so the idea was to bring a neuro element into market research which is to understand what people are thinking like you know put a put a device on the head understand their brain signals understand their facial expressions understand their eye tracking yeah. data so the idea was to bring that component into research so that we can go beyond what consumers are claiming we can understand mm-hmm. what consumers are thinking so that's how neurosensor was born uh, and uh, from the time that we launched we got really good acceptance in the market because it was a real pain point from the clients that you know, whenever I, I launch especially in the field of innovation whenever i launch a new product i really want to know the truth i want to understand what consumers are thinking not only what they are saying yeah and that's how neurosensor became very famous and successful uh then we launched it uh so yeah so that's the small story about how neurosensor was born Mm-hmm. And so can you help maybe explain a little bit more about that? So how what was the exact value in the process that you've innovated with Neurosensum for these kind of big corporate clients when they're launching new products, right? So um because there's a lot of buzzwords. You could say AI, yeah. you could say machine learning, you could say yeah. design process and all these beautiful things, yeah. but a lot of times when you dig underneath it's really a bunch of plugins and all this kind of stuff, right? You no. Know, what what what's really driving conver- like I, i don't think neurosensor i'm it's a profitable company today correct yeah it is yeah yeah so it wouldn't be a profitable company if it's not delivering the value so what is underneath the hood or what's the insight that's driving the conversions for your clients okay let me give you a very simple example see when people they launch a new commercial a lot of those commercials are normally tested with the consumers in market research yeah So normally clients have always two or three options to to decide from. I've got route A, route B, route C as a commercial. Now traditionally, when we were doing claim-based research, we were only normally asking on a scale of one to five, how much you like this ad. Yeah. So traditionally, because people they give you such nice and polite answers, the averages can be very similar. Ad A might be four point two, ad A B might be four point two one, ad C might be four point two two. But yep. if you look at these three scores, there is no significant difference between them. So what might people they do do? They might go back with their gut again. Okay, four point two two looks slightly higher than four point two, but this is not significantly higher. <laughs> yeah. So people will, in spite of doing research, you will still go back to your gut. Then what's the point of doing research? Yeah. Right. But the moment we do neuroscience, that's where we can see that from a from a brain perspective, when we are looking at these three campaigns, these three campaigns of A, B, C. at a claim level are parity because the averages are same but when we pick mm-hmm. the brain signals we understand campaign a created more engagement mm okay uh because that's how we kind of analyze the data while campaign c was very very boring let me give you a very classic example if you see a a food category if i show a mother cooking for the kid so kid is happy father is happy mother is cooking uh what do you think consumers will say when they look at that ad this good emotion there's a family bonding consumer will say good ad right yeah but but possibly those ads have been seen multiple times in different different contexts mm so if it's not uniquely executed because the setting is familiar the story is not unique so at a claim level yeah. people will say i like it because they're showing a mother uh, cooking for the f- For for the family and everybody loves doing that in Asia. So at a claim level, people will say yes, I like it. But at a subconscious level, it's a boring ad if it's not executed yeah. different differently. Why? Because you have seen these themes over the years, right? In the last twenty thirty years, we would have seen mother cooking, um, yeah. different yeah. categories. So it might look look at a claim level, it might look great. But at a subconscious level, it might be a very boring ad if it's not executed very differently. If it's un- it doesn't have a unique component. So now you can appreciate where the neurosensor insights comes in, because we are able mm-hmm. to understand how brain is responding. Is your brain signal 
because you know brain emits the signals like alpha beta delta theta gamma so we're able to decode those signals and say is this a boring ad or is it an engaging ad mm. so is this really uh spiking up your neurons in the brain or are they very stationary so which signals is it emitting when you're looking at an ad so if it's emitting a signal of boredom then it means that i might say that i like it but i i find it very very boring so what happens in reality when you watch that ad you might just skip that ad and you might yeah. switch your channels or zapping yeah so traditionally at a claim level i would have told client go ahead nice ad good messaging but when neurosensor looks at that ad differently they say you know at a claim level people they like it but subconsciously they completely get detached with it because it's okay. not uh, it's not differentiated there's a very familiar setting it's a very familiar message yeah and how would you guys account for bias then so see how how do you account for bias uh, the couple of things that we do uh, one is you don't go to only two people you normally have a sample of 100 people okay right so from 100 we normally look at the so the the, the database is a bit wider and second we do a bit of cleaning up of the data so from 100 we might take only 90 because we might remove some of the some of the respondents that we talked about which might be pre okay. predefined bias and when when we show a commercial we directly don't show the commercial to to the client right we normally show a synetron and suddenly a commercial will come they don't know that they're they're going to watch a commercial yeah So this this is some a simple way of kind of explaining. Okay, it. and I think what's most interesting is that um, it, this is more of like a, a consulting type uh, agency type model. But I think the more interesting discussion to be had, which has led to the the birth of survey sensum, right? And yeah. if I understand correctly, what we just dis- what we discussed before is that survey sensum essentially is a competing a comparable to uh, the company Qualtrics. Right. Yeah. And right. I think the story of Qualtrics is a very fascinating one. I think you know the story of Ryan Smith uh, starting this as a family business in the basement of Utah. Uh, you know, sold it for eight billion dollars to SAP, but it's now as a you know for revenue stream for SAP is probably valued closer to twenty-one billion dollars. Right. Yeah. And I think what we've seen over the years is just evaluations of SaaS proving over time that it's a lot bigger than anyone ever imagined. And, that, and we talked about this before, like. uh more than 10 15 years ago everyone thought the largest SaaS business is going to be a billion dollars but if you look at Salesforce today right um it's you know it's in hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap and that value it's generating um so i think you know uh what what did you tell us you know what exactly is survey sensum and how is that born out of this kind of pain point of neurosensum sure so so when we were selling neurosensum consulting which is the agency business uh we realized that there's a big pain point that clients were facing and uh, they were asking us this question oh, rajiv I, lo- i love the consulting but for many many cases i cannot afford a consulting service because consulting is expensive yeah so even a larger enterprises they have got 1000 questions on a monthly basis to answer but only for few of them they can go to a consulting rest mm-hmm. what they do they use uh, a gut feel or they use typical uh, some platform which are not very great uh, I-, i don't want to name them on the on the forum but they normally use some <laughs> platform which are not able to give them the insights in a de- great way so that's how service sensor was born then i realized that there's a big gap in the market that people want faster cheaper and better platform mm. because for every model they don't need a consulting they're yeah. saying you know i can do it myself but just give me a product that i can do it myself which can understand the uh, native languages in southeast asia yeah and and second part is because as we know that the the consumers are going omni channel right now we are interacting on website we are interacting on app we are going to the retail outlets so consumers from uni channel have become omni channel hmm. which means can i gather my consumer feedback when they come to my website can i gather my consumer feedback when i when they come to my app can i gather my consumer feedback when they go to my retail outlet can i gather my feedback when they come to on my social media pages So that's how Survey Sensor was born, which was to create a AI-enabled survey platform, which is omni-channel in nature. Which means a yeah. survey platform that you can plug with your CRM, survey platform you can plug with your app, with your website, with all the channels that you are operating with as a client. So the mm-hmm. moment customer touches a brand or a service, a survey goes to a customer, asking yeah. for the feedback. And the moment they give a feedback, with Survey Sensor platform, you can look at all the dashboards live. 
which means you don't have to wait for weeks and months. Normally in consulting, you have to wait for a yeah. month to get the insight. Correct. So all these dashboards are real time or omni-channel. And the cost of doing the survey has become very, very cheap now with the platform. Mm. But if you don't cannot afford a consulting, people are using service sensor, and that's how service sensor was born. This mm. was to make market customer feedback more affordable, customer feedback real time, and uh, omni-channel. So that was the entire idea of, of service sensor. Plus, what we did, we created our NLP engines, which is in the native languages. Mm. Which means when you ask question in Thai or in Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Malay, the algorithm is able to give you a real-time analysis of that feedback. Mm-hmm. Which normally in a consulting model, we were doing it manually. We were tag- tagging the data manually. Mm. Now machine automatically yeah. learns and tells you tell you the insights of those open-ended surveys. So, I mean, I really like this. I really like the story because it, it seems like it has been organic, organically derived from finding by by solving one problem, but then finding more problems and solving those problems, right? Um, but with that in mind, you know, did were you aware of Qualtrics as well? Was there any inspiration, or this is just purely coming from your clients and just following solving value for for what they needed? So, see, in two thousand eighteen, honestly, I didn't know about Qualtrics. So okay. when we were building Service Sensor, we just knew the pain point. We knew a platform called Survey Monkey. Yeah, we looked at Survey Monkey. We asked our clients why you don't like Survey Monkey. We understood what are the pain points with Survey Monkey. Yeah, and then we started creating our product. Keeping mm-hmm. the pain point of Survey Monkey in mind, and we also knew Typeform. So yeah. Qualtrics, I came to know about Qualtrics in 2019. Very, very late. This is when I they think, already had sold. Yes. Uh, uh, for yeah, so yeah, so I think possibly that was a bit of my ignorance at that time. That I came to know. I think it was in January 2019 when I came to know about Qualtrics. Okay. So when we started mm-hmm. Service Sensor, it was around in June 2018. Okay. So while we were building it, we were on the right track. But then I came to know about Qualtrics when SAP bought and suddenly it became very famous. Because Qualtrics yeah. did not have a great presence in Southeast Asia. Correct. A lot of their presence were in the developed markets. And, uh, and of course, of course, over time, we came to know more about what Qualtrics is doing. That helped us to get inspiration also. We also, you know, yeah, you yeah. don't only learn from yourself, you learn from your competition too. Yeah, correct. And I mean, since you're operating in both markets. Correct. So that's how Service and some SaaS uh, platform was born. Do you think it's wise to be running two companies? And how do you manage your time effectively then? Um, I will not say it's wise to be running two companies. I will never advise people to run two companies. Um, no. I think for me, it just happened uh, by, by luck or by design. Yeah. I think the, the great thing was that with Neurosensum, we always knew the consulting business so well that it became profitable in seven months. Oh, wow. Very nice. So I never had to worry about Neurosensum fundraising. Yeah. And I, I was lucky that I got some good people on board who were, who were managing Neurosensum business. Now, uh, when it, mm-hmm. so I could devote a lot of time on service and some product building as well as service and some scale up. But mm-hmm. if you ask me, you know, uh, it becomes difficult to manage because I do still have to oversee the operations of Neurosensum at times. But difficult, yeah. to, it gets difficult for me to at times to manage uh, work with personal life and then work basically means two companies, two brands to look after. But yeah, but I think uh, initially it was tough. I got, now I got used to it in a way. And currently, how, how big is the team now? For both sides, actually, uh, together around I think sixty people. Yeah. And uh, how how do you guys think about you know product iteration? How do you roll out features? Uh, you know, and especially since you're operating in two markets, customization versus scalability. Yeah. So see, uh, I think uh, I'm not a big believer of customization. Okay. All right. So uh, first of all, when you say how do we do an iteration, uh, what I learned while creating SaaS in the last four years. Never add features just looking at what competition is doing. Create yeah. a minimum viable product and keep on adding features based on your client request. So getting use cases is very, very important. Even at times when we started, we had to give it at a, almost at a free price to begin with. That's okay. Yeah. Or at a very discounted price because your customer should ultimately help you to create the product. Yeah. yeah. So your feature prioritization based, is based on what customers want and then you can keep on adding those features. Put that into your... Uh, a dictionary, and then keep on adding them as you keep on adding more resources in the team. So that's one bit. Second, we do very less customization. We only touch customization if it's a part of our product scale-up. Mm-hmm. If somebody is asking for a customization, I, I don't see that as a roadmap for the next two years. I will not touch it. 
Mm. I will only do a customization for a client if I see that or offer roadmap within the next six to nine months. Yeah. So that customization, for example, initially people were asking us dashboards. We did that because we knew that dashboard is a roadmap. Yeah, correct. They were asking us a Salesforce integration. We did it because we knew that Salesforce integration is a part of the roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, but so so customization is entertained only if it's a part of the product roadmap. Yeah, and I, I th so how do you figure out what features are then worthy of taking? Like, you know, who who takes the data from the customer and then who verifies that this needs to be a part of the roadmap? Because just because a customer tells you they want something doesn't mean it's going to scale for all the customers because it may be very yeah. different. Yeah. But then at the same time, sometimes it is something very important. How do you decide what's not important, what's important? And then who's kind of responsible for that? Yeah, so uh, customer success team is the first entry point in that way. So they are the one who normally collate these requests from the customers. Then it goes to the product lead. The product lead possibly is working with multiple customer success team. And he gets a lot of feedback mm -hmm. from these customer success team. And product lead ultimately is the one who takes the call. Which yeah. means the product lead might not be able to satisfy all customer success managers. Yeah, of and he might not be able to yeah. satisfy all the clients at the same time. But he's the one who takes the call on, on setting mm -hmm. the hierarchy. Okay. And then what about your role in that involvement? Or have you focused on other parts of the business? Uh, so see, my role initially was very much, I was very much involved in the product in the initial time. Yeah. But over time, when the product has become stable, it has uh, become uh, good. I've I've taken my hands off the product. Of course, I'm, I have a weekly call with my product team to understand what they're building, what they're adding. But from a product, uh, my road map has moved personally for me, has moved from more from a setting up the marketing and sales, mm. which is how, so that's where I devote a lot of, time, of my time, which is talking to the yeah. marketing team, talking to the sales team, Customer success and product is uh, is something I've given it to other person to handle uh, in the team. So while uh, my focus is very much on the marketing and sales acceleration. And how often are you guys shipping product features or changes? Uh, and does it differ from region to region or client to client? Uh, it doesn't differ from client to client. As I said, that you know we add features. Uh, we normally every month we are we are adding features. So we normally have fixed until now. Somebody's really paying huge bucks that we can do a custom for them, which you normally tend to avoid. But every month we come up with new features that we extend to the other market, to okay. all the clients. As I mentioned, the processes take all the requests, put that into the dictionary, put that into yeah. your to-do list, and then start prioritizing and communicate to clients accordingly. Hmm. So is the cycle for shipping slower because of the nature of the clients? They're more sensitive because it feels like in something that's more consumer oriented, shipping would be done much faster almost every day or every few days, right? See, a uh, couple of reasons for that. Uh, normally because we started with a lot of larger enterprises. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now different larger enterprises can have different, different requests. So initially, yeah. uh, initially we were almost doing it on a weekly basis. I think the reason was because you know product product has been four years old right now. Correct. So what you are talking about is the point where we, we started four years back. At that time, we have to do it every second or third day. But over time, the product has become so big that additional features that we have to do, we don't have to do it on a daily basis because a lot of basics have been taken care of. Yeah. Then we kind of then start prioritizing integration some of the features, which we can roll out on a fortnight to a monthly basis. So it's not as regular mm -hmm. as it was for four four years back. I see. Um, and actually, so that means that you were essentially, is it fair to say you were looking for a strong product market fit to ensure stickiness and reduce churn when you were shipping faster? And now you're saying it's pretty much a stable product. So now that's why you focus on scale and growth. That's correct. So I think the, the key part is to get your product market fit right. If you have not got, got that right, no matter whatever you do, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So as I was talking to you, right, I mean, the scale should only come when you've proven your product market fit. Yeah. So the product has to be stable, it has to be catering to a market, and then you scale it up from there. Perfect. Yes. Very good advice. Um, so I want to talk about just SaaS in general, because uh, you, I think SaaS as a category is, I think the opportunity is still huge for Asia. It's right. quite mature in the West. We've, we've seen the valuations and how much value in the public markets it's even proven, right? So um, you've been doing this for the past four years, uh, maybe survey sent some a little bit shorter, I guess. Uh, what, what has the biggest ch changes in SaaS you've seen in Southeast Asia for the past few years versus, say, like 10 years ago? 
Um, I think in Southeast Asia, SaaS is getting a bit more importance toward two, 10 years back. People are getting used to DIY. First of all, they're accepting yeah. more SaaS overall. And they're also getting used to DIY, not to the level of a developed market, but people are getting ready to learn to do things by themselves. Mm-hmm. It was not there 10 years back. So people didn't accept DIY as much. And a lot of SaaS actually should be DIY. Of course, there's always a service component involved, which normally comes into yeah. play with the larger enterprises. But this is a thing that I've seen with uh, with clients now. So because, you know, whether you talk about Zoom, you talk about a lot of other software, they're almost like DIY. So clients have become yeah. more yeah. Uh, acceptable to doing it themselves, learning things, not always hand-holding, like we were hand-holding yeah. 10 years yeah. back. It has become relatively better from that way. Okay. But but it still requires some hand-holding, right? Yes, it does. I think in Southeast Asia, that's something that we have seen, that it does require the hand-holding. Yeah. I mean, a good, a good example is when I was working with um, uh, a previous company, I was able to convince the owner to, to buy a similar web account, which is very expensive, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nothing too cheap, which in a sense is like a SaaS product for analytics, so they could use it for competitive data and information. Uh, it helps with the performance marketing, the product yeah. cycles, all this kind of stuff. And But the main problem was I was able to convince the owner, but there was no one who was capable of actually un- taking the time to understand how to use it and extract the value. Right. Uh, is this a common problem that you see as well? We do. Across whether we you talk to large or mid-sized enterprises, if you want the stickiness of the product to go up in Southeast Asia, you need to have the service orientation also. Which means in our costing, we have both. Mm. We have a tech element and we also have a service element. So if, if you think that people will just go a- log, log in, pay through Stripe, and it will automatically function, it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. If, uh, otherwise, the churn yeah. becomes very, very high. You cannot move the consumers up the, up the value chain. Correct. So there are a lot of differences from what I'm hearing, you know, between SaaS uh, from the West and SaaS from the East. Hmm. And, and I, I shared with you before the article from Dev Kari, the partner Lightspeed Ventures. And uh, he likes to categorize it as, you know, two different categories which means that, you know, essentially innovation would be, have to be approached differently for a SaaS company in the U.S. versus a SaaS company in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Would you also agree that these are two separate categories and that's how you built very different products? I think you don't have to build different products, right? I mean, I don't think Cortis has built differently their product across markets. Yeah. I think the, the key difference that you have to see is uh, a DIY uh, service orientation can go a bit low in a Western market. People can go to the website, they can buy, they can pay through Stripe, and it can it can automatically happen. That's one bit. Second, the integrations which are required with the ecosystem can be a bit different. Mm-hmm. Depending upon the popularity of the other system that you're working with. So those integrations can differ from markets to market. But uh, I do see with the customers that we've got from US, I do see a far more developed consumers. They understand the customer experience, customer feedback, they they use many more features in comparison to what I see in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the bigger so, difference that I see. So for your team structure, then does that make it more complex? Because you need a heavier customer success company in Asia, but then you want to focus more on US. That feels like a lot of yin and yang tension. How do you balance that? Yeah, it is. I think we we have a relatively bigger team for customer success uh, in uh, in uh, in Indonesia. The reason is because we are serving the larger enterprises in Indonesia. We intentionally did not go to SME in Indonesia because they don't want to pay money. Yeah. Uh, so we have left that to SurveyMonkey and Typeform and Google Form. So our intention was only to go to larger enterprises and they need handholding. So we had a relatively biggest customer success team. But in US, because we are going to mm-hmm. mid-sized enterprises, our customer success team is small. One person can handle multiple accounts because the number of requests which are coming, then they don't come so frequently. Because people can read, they can look at the videos, they're, they're able to do it by themselves or far more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and how do you think about then competing with Qualtrics or have you, are you serving a different segment completely? Or are you concerned about this? Or is, there, is the pie big enough globally that it doesn't matter? I think it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we don't have to compete with Qualtrics. I don't see it that way. I think uh, this category of SaaS survey platforms are exploding right now so what is happening over time the consulting business uh, is getting shrunk to some extent and a lot of money is moved into diy platforms 
Okay, mm-hmm. and, and at the same time, because these data platforms can be omni-channel in nature, and and this category itself is growing uh, tremendously. So we don't have to only compete with one player. I think what I believe is that yeah. we have to compete with ourselves. How can we accelerate <laughs> our growth? There's enough in the market for anybody to have uh, people who can do it smartly, intelligently, and can retain customers are are, are the one who will be coming out as champions. So Cortex, of course, is one of the biggest company in the world. Uh, uh, you know, they they they've done well. Uh, but as I said, the pie is is increasingly growing. Would you say that your biggest market currently is Indonesia still? As of now, yes, Indonesia is our biggest market, but uh, now US has started picking up for us. Mm-hmm. So, what would a sales cycle look like in Indonesia versus the US? See, uh, again, it's a, it's a different client kind of clients that we are we are focusing on. In US, we don't have a person on the ground right now. We are normally targeting through digital efforts or digital marketing. Yeah. So in US, because we know that we don't have the individuals on the ground, we're not focusing on larger enterprises. Mm, when, we, when we have, because we just started in US almost a month back. So when we have a person on the ground or few people on the ground, then focusing on larger enterprises makes sense. So in US, we are normally yeah. going to the mid-sized enterprises. And most of that marketing is happening from India and the conversion is happening from India. So those sales cycles are very small. It can, so it depends if somebody signs up then the deals can be closed within two or three weeks because the, the profile of the consumers are a bit wow. different, right? They're normally mm. small to mid-size. Uh, and, and the paycheck is small, and that's where we're looking at velocity. Mm, okay. More, more than the value per customer. So we're looking at the volumes in US market for that approach. In Indonesia, we were normally focusing on the larger enterprises. So that's how uh, it was a bit mm-hmm. different, but that's how we started within Indonesia. And those larger enterprises helped us to create a platform which has become so good mm-hmm. and at the same time we, we are affordable so we're able to give a lot of good value to our clients in other markets because the platform is pretty more advanced but the, it's not that expensive as other other competitors yeah so so i guess the back in the day then closing an indonesian client must have taken months or how long yeah. did it take so normally with any larger enterprises it can take two to three months to close a deal it's a mm-hmm. typical norm in a SaaS uh, in a larger enterprise yeah especially in southeast asia and you would probably need what a certain network or understanding to get into these kind of companies, or like how did you know who to target? And I feel that sometimes it could even take six months or a year if you are not as familiar. Yes, so I think you one is that of course you have to have a good marketing. To uh, we do a lot of webinars, you know, we do podcasts, but a lot of okay. webinars they give us very very good uh, lead. Uh, so uh, it gives us it's a good channel to generate lead for us. Uh, plus, of course, we have the sales team on the ground, which helps us to, to get close to the customers. So that's how mm-hmm. normally the large enterprises play works because it's very relationship-driven business with the large enterprises in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. uh, you have to build relationship even for six months before you move to the next step in terms of deal closure. So, so currently, is the headquarters in Singapore or is it in Indonesia? The headquarters in Singapore. So how, how do you justify uh, primarily Indonesian business but being based in Singapore, especially, you know, does that, does that actually help out because of credibility? Uh, is it too far away from a sales perspective? Um, you know, a lot of people argue you need to be in Indonesia to be effective, or is this not true? I think you have to be in Indonesia to be effective. We have got a massive team in Indonesia. Our headquarters is more from a credibility perspective in Singapore, more from a consolidation okay. perspective in Singapore, but we have not focused big in Singapore as of now. Uh, because mm-hmm. Indonesia was giving us very, very good returns. Idea was to capture that market as much as soon as possible. So the focus was very much on the ground team in Indonesia. So that means uh, before COVID, you were probably spending a lot of time in Indonesia anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think from Monday to Friday, I was in Indonesia. On the weekend, I was in <laughs> Singapore. <laughs> but yeah, but I think uh, with COVID, everything has gone remote. You know, uh, so the face-to-face yeah. meetings are not happening much. So whether you are traveling or not traveling, it doesn't make a big difference from a client perspective. Has that slowed down growth or changed the way sales will be done in the future? Is this a permanent change or will it return back to the norm when you need to be on the ground? See, uh, for us, the growth has accelerated. It has not slowed down. Mm. Uh, I think the reason is our productivity went up tremendously. We didn't need to have 100 people. We, we, were, having, we were having 50, 60 people. We are still the same in strength. But overall, the productivity went up, uh, which really helped us. Uh, our, our growth was tremendous in the last two years. Uh, because people were moving to online platforms, online was a way to go. Uh, will it change moving forward? I think the face-to-face meetings will come back. And I hope it yeah. comes back. I get very, very bored, you know, sitting at home and doing <laughs> the remote calling. 
I would yeah, have loved, yeah. loved to be in your studio doing it face to face with you and then going for a drink after that. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to change. It would have been better. better. <laughs> it's going to change, but I think it, it won't completely go back to pre-COVID. It will be still a hybrid model okay. where the okay. Uh, okay. remote will still happen, but I think the face-to-face meetings will help it to accelerate the growth, especially events, face-to-face web seminars. That is something which will really help uh, and, and a face-to-face interaction with clients. Do, do you think that actually then it could help your cost structure and you could reduce certain costs because of this change or it doesn't really, it's just marginally a little bit changing? I think it will, uh, to us, I think, I don't think the cost, see, whatever efficiencies we could build, we already built in the last two years. I mm. don't think it's going to change, uh, uh, you see, from a from a incremental cost perspective with COVID coming in, what is the extra money that we are paying? which is mainly the Zoom cost. Right? Yeah. Uh, marketing mm-hmm. will still continue. Uh, possibly, ra- rather than having webinars, we might have webinars plus face-to-face seminars. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I don't see us reducing cost post-COVID era. It might increase cost, honestly, yeah. post-COVID, because we might need to have more people on the ground for the face-to-face meetings. Mm. And we might start traveling yeah. more. Uh, but it's good to... Yeah. To do that because you know that incremental of the cost you can get a lot of more incremental of the return on the business too correct yeah i mean essentially face-to-face could add more leverage and stickiness by building the relationship yeah, and that's uh, better information too for, yeah. for product cycles and development right yeah. um so it, it sounds like if you were only to focus on southeast asia that means there would be a very limited total addressable market is that fair to say i think uh, yeah, so I will not say it's limited because I think even if you look at the TAM of Southeast Asia for our industry, it might be three to four billion, three billion dollar approximately. But, okay. but having said that, for our industry, going to SME doesn't make sense. So it's only the larger enterprises yeah. play. Uh, velocity can be a bit poor, as you mentioned, because sales yeah. cycle will be a bit higher. Uh, and I think, in fact, to expand in Southeast Asia, I'm honestly waiting for the travel to start. A bit more because yeah. then if you're yeah. if you're approaching larger enterprises, you don't have team on the ground. It becomes very very difficult to close the deals. Yeah, it's not that easy. Until unless you're the Microsoft of the mm-hmm. world, it's, it might be different because the brand name is big. So I think if you are if we are catering to the larger enterprises within Southeast Asia, I'm just waiting for the borders to open up a bit more. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I think what we have what I have chosen is to go to a developed market like US, and and yeah. I think it was also for us to prove that the product can work in a big developed market. Yeah. It's not only in the developing market where we can, where there's a service orientation, but it can also work in a big developed market which can take it as a DIY. This is also for us to yeah. prove to ourselves uh, that you know we can be sustainable in both kinds of environments. Yeah. And you know, thinking about it and listening to you talk, all the global SaaS companies that we do know about, um, it, there's almost like this narrative that it's ubiquitous, you know, like uh, Canva and Slack and all these kind of things that it's it's uh, very deeply entrenched. But honestly, there's probably uh, it's only very ubiquitous, probably in the, the whole markets that they're in. And of course, there is a global population that uses it. But right. I think on a global scale, it only scratches just the surface. And yeah. I think I think what you're alluding to is that, you know, uh, the, you you are a inherently B2B business, so you're not going to touch SMEs, but a lot of SaaS is going to be emerging markets focused where it's very consumer oriented. And that's a really, really massive market in terms of SaaS. So even if you're an emerging market SaaS, it could be just as big or even bigger than some of the SaaS companies we know uh, around the world, right? That's correct. It uh, depends whether if, you, if your B2C is your focus, then it can be a different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's because commonly it's thought that, you know, if it's emerging market SaaS, there's a limited on TAM size, but it seems that at least in your case, you're, you'd have to have multiple viewpoints and exposure to different worlds. Then you become a global company, yeah. but it's more like different products, right? Yeah. Whereas this narrative from the West is that we have a global SaaS company that everyone uses, right? But uh, it seems that you can probably make the same size companies just maybe for a different segment of users and solving different problems that are more emerging markets focused and just be as big. Yes, definitely. So I think uh, which goes back to the point, are your B2B focused SaaS or your B2C focused SaaS? Yeah, correct. And then and speaking about B2B SaaS, then uh, how, how have you seen the best way to sell it? it? You know, there's typically seen as, you know, bottom up SaaS or top down SaaS, or as Dev Kare says, you know, delivery as, as a model or sales as a model. And sales as a model is you go to the company, CIO, CFO, sell the product to them, then you have to you know sell it to the, the users, people who are using it. 
and then eventually the company adopts it in a long sales cycle. And then yeah. I guess the bottom up or the delivery method is that you build a Canva or Slack and then everyone just starts organically using it. Then eventually the company will pick it up as a corporate account. Uh, for you in the space that you've seen, what works best in Southeast Asia for B2B SaaS? I'll say if you want a bigger size deal, then top down. Might take time, but then you will get a down. bigger pick check. If you're talking about the mm -hmm. B2B large enterprise game, yeah, top down. Yeah. Have you tried doing bottom-up? Because Slack uh, is uh, technically bottom-up, right? Yeah, so I think Slack possibly is, again, you know, whether you want to give it a freebie and a very small price. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, so it, it depends what you want to play. But I think what we did when it started with bottom-up in Southeast Asia did not work much for us. Then we went top-down mm -hmm. for a larger enterprises play. Then th that, that gave us a lot of good results. Yeah, and it probably inherently points to how the market was like 10 years ago. Um, not as much knowledge about SaaS, needs more handholding. Yeah. So it kind of does make sense that to build the trust, you have to be more engaged, whereas they're not going to likely play with something that's free. Yeah. Um, you know, unless it's a widely viable product that all the employees demand, but that just probably wasn't happening. Uh, I think Microsoft has been entrenched. A lot of these older systems, Outlook. Yeah. I know a lot of companies who still vouch for Outlook. So yeah, that's correct. So let me move to the next question. Let's, let's talk about something a little bit more relevant. Uh, what do you think about the Freshworks IPO and its current valuation of 11 billion USD? You know, how big do you think these companies in India can get? And do you think that will be the same for Southeast Asia? I think, of course, they've done a massive job. And I think uh, uh, I'll not comment on the valuation. That's not for me to, to make a judgment on. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of Indian SaaS companies are becoming very proud of the fact that Freshworks has done well. Of course, they've done well yeah. in many parts of the world. I think US being the biggest for them, I'm assuming. But I think uh, their the business model has been pretty good. If you listen to the to the founder talking, it's almost like you know uh, they are competing with Salesforce, good features, affordable price, which I think has yeah. done well for them. And I think it's a matter of time that they get more entrenched in Southeast Asia and India. But of course, I think developed market is mm -hmm. what gives them a lot, lot of money as of now. It has made the entire SaaS business exciting, I'll say. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just saying that, you know, uh, the, the more success it brings, the more talent gets driven to it, the more VC money gets into it. And I think, you know, you starting so early in the game and follow, you know, building organically, I think, you know, if you wanted to, you could ride this wave really big, you know, assuming everything you're saying is true, the profitability is there, the big market size is there. Uh, it's it's possible for you, if you are ever interested in raising around, you would probably do very well in this market, I would say. Sure, thanks. I think that's exactly, you know, I think with this, this fresh work IPO, I'll say, See, traditionally, you know, VCs in our ecosystem, uh, in Southeast Asia, they, I'll say SaaS is not at the top of their, uh, yeah. their hierarchy in terms of the, uh, the category. Possibly because logistics, e-commerce, fintech is what was exploding in our Southeast Asian market. Yeah. And always VCs in Southeast Asia, they always wanted you to have big TAM, big markets. So if they're only <laughs> present in yeah, Southeast yeah, right. Asia, they don't really look at that from a B2B perspective. I'm not talking about a B2C SaaS. Now with this Freshwork yeah. IPO, I'll say it has completely honestly opened up the, the game. I'm sure that more VCs will now start looking at SaaS business. Good for us. I think it's time for me yeah. to always now go back to the market and, and check out. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, having said that, I think it's also important for us to crack a developed market, not only a development market, so that we have stories from both parts of the world. Yeah. And then ultimately, I guess... Um... If you are focusing on B2B SaaS in, in Asia or the space globally, what would the main thing you need to focus on to be to ensure that you'll be successful in this space and industry? See, I think, uh, I will say, I think great customer success, which is client retention, right? I think service component mm -hmm. definitely helps, whether it's about onboarding and picking up the call. So yeah. I, I'm a big believer of a great, building a great customer success team adding a value to the client, you don't need to be as expensive as the companies in US. You can still be affordable undercut, but that undercutting yeah. doesn't mean that you can sacrifice customer success. Yeah. So to me, the great value is not only technology, but what people can do with the technology, yeah. which is the entire uh, onboarding element, customer success element that we add to the system. I mean, if you look at Freshwork, classic example of how the growth happened for them. Yeah. So similar to that, I think, Providing features, tech is one part, but ensuring that people are using your product, they're delighted. I mean, there cannot be greater satisfaction of people using your product to getting a value out of that for them. Yeah. And I, th I think essentially it's being able to 
having a team and culture that can listen at scale, right? Because right. essentially you're just, you just want to listen to people. What are the problems? And are you actually solving those problems? Right. And of course, the bigger you get, the trickier it gets. But essentially you're trying to build that machine that can do that. And once you deliver the value, I think the, the dividends will come for sure. Right. I think that that's, that is to me is the key, which is to ensure yeah. that your clients are successful when they use your products and they talk about you. No, no matter whatever marketing we do, Case, case studies and a referral marketing, then nothing can beat that. You know, the entire word of mouth that client is talking about you, a client has given you a use case to write about for them, how they benefited from your product, uh, nothing can beat that. Okay, so I think I just have a few questions, uh, maybe more personal questions. I, I think we've hopefully convinced the audience that we should learn more about you. Sure. Um, I think there's a lot of, like more recently, there's a lot of young founders from India coming into Southeast Asia and um, some of the entrenched players are saying, oh, you know, uh, what can an Indian person understand about the Southeast Asian market, right? Uh, at the same time, I have, you know, a, a Chinese friend from China building a, a fintech company in India. So they're saying, what is the Chinese guy doing in the Indian market? How can he succeed? Why should we give him money, right? right. Um, and I think you're, you're maybe different because you've came very long time ago to understand the market. You've worked through it. You've grown through it. You know it really well. Um, but do you think... The, it's it, 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 it's possible to be completely foreign, like never been to Indonesia. Uh, like, for example, Buku Kas Buku Warang, within like you know, six to nine months, they raised 600 to $100 million. Yeah. Uh, they have a user base in the millions already. Do you yeah. think this is going to work out? Or do you think this is more of people riding the big wave and the sentiment? I think it can work out, you know, as long as individuals are ready to uh, learn the culture. I think going to a to market, learning the culture, making network in that market becomes very, very important. If yeah. somebody wants to crack Indonesia and they just go and sit in, in Indonesia without networking, without understanding the local culture, without having the local no. team to help them out, they can't be successful. No. So I think uh, getting to the local, I think you can be successful in any country that you want, right? As long as no. is, is that, is, whether you want to adapt to that culture is, is a big uh, yes, yes, mm -hmm. I, be, I believe. And and do you think uh, you you know move a few decades ago you moved to Southeast Asia? Ha, have you ever felt? Do you still feel as a minority? Do you feel that at, they treated you as a minority at one point or another? Uh, has it ever affected you or how you how you operate or? No, I think see in Indonesia. I think I was there for fourteen years. I it was almost like a home to me. It still is a home, yeah. to a large extent. I never felt an outsider there. Of course, I could I learned the language that helped me a lot. I think once I came to Singapore, Singapore is very metropolitan. Yeah. Right. So I, I never felt uh, out of out of home in both the countries. I think in South Asia, yeah. people have got a lot of smile on their face, so you can easily adapt to the yeah. to the culture. Yeah. That's true. So as long as you're adaptable, it shouldn't be a problem, if, even if you are, are a minority. Yeah. So I think see that the everything lies lies with you, right? I mean, uh, how yeah. how flexible you are as an individual. Uh, uh, I think we can we should not. I, I mean, I'm not a believer of blame, blaming the outside world. The world is inside yeah. us, right? So we we have to we are the individuals who have to change ourselves uh, if we want to succeed or make more friends or be uh, be not to be considered as a minority, right? I mean, yeah. if you mean if you're ready to mingle yeah. with people, then you will never be a, a minority in any culture. And in your in your early thirties, you had a success already. You know, you were part of a successful small business or startup or whatever you want to call it now. Yeah. Uh, you even had an exit. Most most people at that you know age, if they're successful, they would say you know it's good enough. Um, how do you view being, is it fair to say you're a more mature founder? Uh, do you think the startup game is for younger people or how do you view this? I think I'll say, I'll call myself as a more mature founder. Uh, and I think to me, age doesn't matter, right? If, yeah. if KFC can be built after 60 years yeah. uh, from the founder, uh, then I think all of us are pretty yeah. young. I think, uh, and I think what is the definition of success becomes very, very important, right? When even my previous company, when the company got sold, I made money. Definition cannot be a money itself. Yeah. The definition has to be the vision has to be what I'm doing with my company, which can disrupt the game that I want to play. Yeah. Am I playing that game? Am I being true to the vision? And and why I'm doing what I'm doing? If that why is only money, then it's a very small why. Hmm. Right. So whether you're a young entrepreneur or old entrepreneur doesn't really matter. It's what you want to do with what you're doing. Uh, what's the biggest bigger purpose of life? To me, that's a far bigger equation to look at. Yeah. And that's that's what drives me. So you know, whether yeah. 30 or 40, I still have the same energy when I was in 30, 
when I was 31. Possibly I've got more maturity and experience, but my energy level has not dropped. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting this wrong. I, I'm pretty sure I heard this in another podcast. Or I read it in an article. I think the the co-founder of Salesforce was 42 when he started the company. Yeah. So that should give hope to a lot of people that even within 10, 20 years, you could build one of the most valuable companies, even though you're older. Right. Right. I mean, I mean as I mentioned, it starts with why, why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, yeah, correct. What's the vision of, of the company? What's the vision of the brand? And my last question then is, uh, you are a family man. Uh, how do you manage to raise a family and build a startup and run two companies? I think work-life balance. Uh, I'll say I think I'm a firm believer that I have to exercise every day. I have to spend my time with my family whenever I can. If I'm not traveling, I should be with them. So I think for me, it's not about long hours. What you do in those mm. limited hours that you're working, I work nine, ten hours a day. I okay. always work 9, 10 hours a day. I, I'm not somebody who, of course, when I was young, I was used to work 14, 15 or 18 hours a day because I was learning at that time. If yeah. in those 10 hours, 9 hours, if I can be super productive, if I'm working, I'm working. If I'm doing a podcast, I'm doing a podcast. If I'm with my family, I'm with yeah. my family. If I'm exercising, I'm exercising. So I think to me, that, that's that's a mantra. And if, if we, yeah. I, we can be truly be mindful of what we are doing at what point of time. Mm. Some people, they... they feel proud that I've worked 18 hours. I say, possibly, you don't know how to work productively. <laughs> yeah, correct. I work 10 hours, but I work do very productive work in 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that, that okay. has been the mantra for me from the time I got married. And I think I've been decently successful. I can do better with the family life. But I think I've been decently successful in doing. And I think that's what I believe has, has kept yeah. me going. Yeah, I think that's a perfect piece of advice uh, for many founders. Uh, the, doesn't matter where you're on your journey, being mindful of your time and then you know being present and actually engaging in it, uh, and knowing you know what you prioritize within that, and then I think you could be successful in the areas that you want to be. Yeah. So, um, if I can, is, add is there anything you want? Yeah, go ahead, add that more. <laughs> I think other thing that I've realized in the last 12, 13 years of my life, uh, see, networking takes a lot of time. Yeah. So previously, I will go for every network meeting, you know. Um, mm. some, uh, sometimes you need to uh, learn uh, when you go for this network meeting. Now, what I realized that I, I utilize my time only for network meeting where I can see some benefit coming out, not commercial mm. benefit, but something that I can learn or something I can add. Yeah. So what I've done in the last three, four years, I've really cut down my networking meetings, but I've become very much sharper with my network meetings. Mm. So previously, I'll go for every conference. I'll attend every conference. I'll go for every network yeah. meeting. I'll go for every startup meeting. But that used to kind of take a lot of time. And then you, then you get into drinking and then you're socializing. Mm. But I think three, four years, I think my life has become more uh, peaceful. The growth has come in. Family time has gone better. I think it's only the conscious decision that you make. And to me, I think when you talk about mindfulness, it's a big self-awareness. Yeah. Uh, if you have a great self-awareness about ourselves, our health, our body, our mind, that really helps in terms of shaping up a person. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to you doing the homework yourself to understand yourself. Right. And then, of course, how you manifest that into the world and how you want to show up. Uh, and then, you know, I think that's really, I completely agree with you. The, the older I get uh, moving into my mid-30s now, it's it, you have to be more careful with how you spend your time. If not, you know, the next five, 10 years are going to slip by really fast. And then you're going to right. wonder what happened with that time, which, which right. you know, feeds back into the mind, mindfulness piece. Um, so I think, man, very, very wonderful advice. Um, is there anything you want to plug uh, if people want to contact you or anything that we should be aware of that's coming up on your end? No, I think if they want to contact me, ask me anything. I think LinkedIn is a way to go. Uh, they can drop me a okay. note. Yeah, uh, Rajiv Lambda, right? Rajiv Lamba, yeah. Yeah, okay. So if you want to reach out, learn more about SurveySensum, NeuroSensum, uh, SAS, I, I think there needs to be more content for Southeast Asia from founders like this because it's not clear you know, how SAS is and actually actual practitioners in it. So I really appreciate your time and sharing your insights. Uh, it was a great session. Thanks, Alex. It's, it's wonderful having a session with you. Uh, you asked some very, very interesting question. Got me, got me to think harder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we can have you again on in the future when uh, there's more success to come. Sure. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Hey, listeners. Thank you for listening to Rajiv's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, 
Please share it with your friends or family who would benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what did we learn today? Ultimately, we want to box things in categories and compartmentalize ideas and concepts in businesses. Often this can be the tunnel vision. After studying and engaging in SaaS companies and the SaaS industry and talking to more founders building SaaS in Asia, it's becoming more clear to me that SaaS is not black or white in terms of being locally grown or being globally focused. With that being said, it's also clear that it's hard to be a global SaaS company and deep in many foreign markets. And maybe it's also hard to be locally deep and have global reach. There seems to be some trade-off there. That being said, it's very possible we are at the crossroads where global SaaS companies can figure out how to localize for emerging problems or possibly homegrown SaaS companies finding success globally. It's not a zero-sum game. It's important going forward to be able to adapt and grow beyond your current market sizes as SaaS continues to evolve. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.